there, and welcome to Everyday Awesome, a podcast featuring dynamic discussions with interesting, innovative, and inspiring people from all walks of life. I'm your host, Trisha G, and I'm excited and grateful you are here. I was that kid who pretended to interview people using a paper towel tube microphone, and I had a great time doing that. And today I'm having an even better time taking that playful reporter style passion to a real mic to bring you fun and enlightened conversations with amazing people doing awesome things. People who are game changers, inspiring themselves and others, never letting adversity stop them, impacting the world around them, and having a blast on the journey of this thing that we all call life. You may be wondering why listen to this podcast and who the heck is Trisha G? (laughs) Well, I love learning and connecting and my background as a teacher, therapist, endurance cyclist, coach, and nonprofit leader have guided me to create this podcast for you. In each episode, my guests will be sharing nuggets of successful strategies, tips, and inspiration to lift your spirits, ignite your soul, and elevate your day. Stick around, hit play, and together, let's make every day awesome. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Everyday Awesome. I'm your host, Trisha G, and I am so happy that you have joined me today. Thank you so much for being here. Today, the day of this recording, is election day, and at this time of the day, We actually do not know what the outcome of the election is because we're recording in the morning. So it is my hope that whatever the result is today, that we move forward as a country, uniting and coming together to create success as a nation and in our communities. My guest today, Maria Ross, is someone who creates community and connection everywhere she goes and with every single person she interacts with. She is a very dear friend of mine, one of my favorite people in the world, and she's someone that I consider to be a mentor in my personal and professional life. She is the founder of brand consultancy Red Slice, and she believes that cash flow, creativity, and compassion are not mutually exclusive. As a brand strategist, speaker, and author, she advises entrepreneurs and fast growth businesses on building irresistible brand stories that connect with customers and accelerate growth. Maria's most recent book, The Empathy Edge, Harnessing the Value of Compassion as an Engine for Success, it explores empathy as a competitive business advantage, and it was named by Forbes as a top 11 book, Redefining Leadership. She is also the author of Branding Basics for Small Business and The Juicy Guides for Entrepreneurs. Maria understands the power of empathy on the brand, but also on the personal levels. In 2008, shortly after launching her business, she suffered a ruptured brain aneurysm that almost killed her and inspired her acclaimed best-selling memoir, Rebooting My Brain. Maria has spoken to audiences ranging from the New York Times to blog her to Salesforce. She has appeared in numerous media outlets, including MSNBC, ABC News, Forbes.com, and Entrepreneur. And she hosts her own podcast called the Empathy Edge Podcast. She writes for many outlets, including columns on entrepreneur.com and Huffington Post. Maria lives in the San Francisco Bay Area, as I live as well. And she lives with her husband, her young, amazing son, and a precocious mutt, (laughs) as I do as well. 
So today, Marie and I talk about a myriad of interesting and inspiring topics that I know you're going to be excited to hear, including her background, what makes her tick, and what motivates her to go after her dreams in the face of fear and challenges that she has so obviously faced that we just described, how she survived and thrived after a near-fatal aneurysm at the age of 35, what led her to focus on the benefits of and the importance of empathy in business and in personal life, and her tips on how we can harness the power of empathy in our own lives to have more success, more satisfaction, and increased happiness in our work and in our personal lives. So let's get started with Maria Ross. Welcome. Thank you for being here. This is my very first episode with a live person besides myself. <laughs> so, <laughs> Thanks so for having me. Maria. I'm so happy to be here. Yes. Well, I'm happy that you're here. And to get started, I remember thinking back to when I first met you. I don't remember how many years ago, but we're probably looking at eight? 2012. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Because it was when I moved back to the Bay Area from Seattle and I was reaching out to brain injury recovery groups Mm -hmm. and you responded. I try to do that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not 100% perfection, but I try to respond. And I remember uh, when we met, we met at Cafe Trieste in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And I remember that we, it was an immediate connection, an immediate click in wanting to know each other, understanding each other. We don't see eye to eye on everything. We don't have the same experiences, but we found common ground and and inspiration in talking to each other so much so that we had to keep going to feed our meter because we kept running out of time. (laughs) We we were going to be for an hour. Oh my gosh, that's right. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And I think it was three hours, you know, and, and at that time, I remember, I mean, I was a relatively new leader in the nonprofit sector and now as a leader at Schurig Center for Brain Injury Recovery, which is the organization that you and I have met through because you reached out to us, it is a privilege and an honor to do the work that we do and to meet people like you. And I remember when we talked, I was so inspired and just ignited by your passion And you're passionate about every single thing that you do, because now I see you on Facebook. I know you as an author. I know you as a speaker. I know you as a mom. Like Everything you do, you have a passion and a commitment level that always goes above and beyond like that 200, 500% even. (laughs) Yes. Well, I try not to do things I'm not passionate about anymore. So yeah, I think that that's That's true. And likewise, like the work that you guys do is so, you talk about the three eyes, so inspiring. And I think when you have two people that are both pursuing passions and those passions collide, that's where the magic happens. Oh, I know. I love that saying where the magic happens. I really do. And so I've had the pleasure of knowing you and spending time with you. Our listener may be new to you and you have so many interests. I was writing out your interests (laughs) just from what I know of you. But I mean, literally you're an author, Mm -hmm. a brand strategist. Mm -hmm. I know from our personal connection that you're also a singer and an actress. Yeah. Well, singer, I would use that term loosely. So (laughs) I guess I have done singing in my past and I've been part of church choir. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I didn't you know. Will the not, you will part. not see me on the voice anytime <laughs> soon, but yeah, no. Yeah. I just, I have a lot of different interests that mesh across business and the arts. I have a very, very strong bent to the creative arts, to acting, writing, performing. And the funny story there is that I was a child actress when I was younger. So when I lived in New York, I used to do professional commercials, radio, had some almost on some movie roles and TV roles. But my mom and my dad would have liked to see me continue to pursue acting. And I said, no, I'm going to rebel and I'm going to major in marketing in college. (laughs) So I got a business degree and then I didn't get back into acting until I did independent film and community theater. I was like 32 or something like that when I started back into it and just for the pure fun of it. But yeah, that's always been like a funny story that when I share with folks I'm on a cast with who have tried to pursue acting as a full-time career, but their family was not supportive. And I'm like, oh yeah, my parents would have loved for me to do that, but I decided to major in business. (laughs) They're like, I hate you. (laughs) I mean, it's the opposite. You're the opposite story. It's the total opposite, yeah. And 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 your way of rebelling is like, no, how dare you? I am going to be my own person and my own being, and I'm going into business. And you (laughs) Well, the truth of it is, the truth of it is I've always loved performing. I didn't like auditioning. Like that was the thing I didn't like. I loved it when I got a role, but the slog of auditioning was like, uh. so yeah, that kind of explains a lot about me right there. (laughs) Well, we can just probably in the podcast right here then, because we just now got to the nugget of Maria Ross. (laughs) You know, I was incredibly shy, shy kid, like hearing Mm -hmm. that you were almost, you know, paid actress and you almost went down that path. I didn't know that. So that's actually really interesting for me. A lot of people don't realize how incredibly shy I was growing up to the that point That shocked where- me when I learned that about you mm-hmm. because you're such an eloquent speaker. You're so extroverted in so many ways. You sort of bring people along with you. So yeah, it just goes to show that your, your identity can shift and morph as you get older and as your circumstances change. Well, exactly, exactly. And that, that has happened as well in your life. And I want to go into that. Would you be open to sharing a bit about your experience with your aneurysm that happened at age 35 and how that may have shaped and changed you into the person you are today? (laughs) Yeah. So I had just moved from the Bay Area to Seattle, just bought our first home, got our first dog. And then I, because I didn't have enough going on, I launched a business, uh, my (laughs) consulting business. So there was a lot going on. There was a lot of stress. It was all exciting, but it was just a lot going on. And I had experienced some symptoms, ironically, at a theater audition. That was a very severe headache. I was incapacitated. I couldn't, my neck and my back seized up. I couldn't move. And I gathered myself together in order to get back in the car and drive home. But um, went to the doctor and and he just thought it was all the stress that I was under. My blood pressure was through the roof. And so I had a month and a half of symptoms like that, where I had very severe headaches, vomiting. I was doing various things to try to get my blood pressure down. I was going, I got back into yoga. I even tried acupuncture for the first time. And those seemed to sort of alleviate things for a short time. And then I ended up one day after being very, very sick, uh, collapsing on the bathroom floor. And luckily my husband was home at the time. He had decided to come home from work early because I wasn't feeling well. And so he was there, he called the ambulance. They got me to the emergency room and it was discovered that I had a ruptured brain aneurysm. So they very quickly performed emergency surgery. 
I was in an induced coma for a few days till the swelling went down and they didn't really know what to expect. They were sort of like, we saved her life, but we don't really know how she's going to be coming out of this. And that was the news they delivered to my family, to my husband. And so I ended up spending six weeks in the hospital. I didn't have clear vision because I, the hemorrhage was so severe that it caused a hemorrhage in my retinas. And so I couldn't really see. And I was also no short-term memory because of the brain trauma. So I actually don't remember the whole first month in the hospital, but I was lucky to be alive. I didn't realize it at the time because at the time I couldn't really self-assess Mm-hmm. The severity of what had happened. Mm-hmm. And so I left the hospital. I was a little adrift. I did some group therapies, it reluctantly did some group therapies after that, cognitive therapies and psychological therapies, because there's all these unseen effects of a brain injury that I learned about. And, you know, there's all these things you kind of, you look fine. For me, I was lucky enough. I didn't have any physical impairments, But things like my frontal lobe was impacted. So my executive functions were impacted. My ability to process information, my ability to prioritize, my ability to take in too much stimuli at one time. It was like my filter in my brain got broken. And again, dealing with the short-term memory issues. But there's so many other issues, as you know, with brain injury, which are, you know, depression. For some people, it's loss of their social graces, depending on what area of the brain has been impacted. It can be, you know, the ability to not be able to control your temper. But there was so much psychologically that I didn't know what I was dealing with. And it wasn't until I got rehab therapies to explain to me what was going on that I was able to create strategies to overcome them. And so I think a lot of what, if I'm tying that up, a lot of the summary of what got me through and got me back into like a thriving life again, because After that, I ramped my business back up again, slowly, but I ramped it back up. I wrote three books, which had been a dream of mine for a long time. I had a baby at 41, like all of these things happened after that. And it's only when you look back that you can say like, well, what was it? Because when you're in it, you know, to other people, you're an inspiration, right? When you're in it and you come home from the hospital, people are like, oh my gosh. And they think you're some kind of guru that you have some insight about life or death that they don't have. And at that point, you're just kind of like, I just want to be able to walk my dog again. Like I'm just trying to survive day to day. And it's not until you get the distance of the years that you look back. And that's when I wrote Rebooting My Brain, my memoir about that was written two years after my recovery. Or, you know, there's never officially a recovery is there. It's sort of just my adaptation to everything. And I think I have to say part of it was not really knowing the statistics and not really knowing the severity that I think kept my grit. I think had I known some of those things, it would have been a lot more daunting. But since I didn't, it was like, okay, well, we're just going to get through this. Like we get through anything else. But I was changed and that's what I had to deal with. I had to deal with my cognitive deficits and I had to basically change the way that I work change the way that I operate in the world and change the way that I connect and interact with other people and how I manage my time and my work. And we all say those are good things to do, but I was forced to do it because of my limitations. And so that's when, you know, sometimes it's hard because you and I both work with brain injury patients and survivors. And it's very hard for me to say this in front of many who are not 
doing as well as I am to say that I see it as a gift, what happened to me, because it, it woke me up. It basically forced me to change things. And that's the message that I'm out talking about is like, don't wait for that crisis to hit. Like, I know it's hard, but it's try to make those changes and those and adapt and find the resilience before you need it, mm -hmm. before you're forced to do it. And I think right now, what we're seeing with this global pandemic is everyone's been forced into a situation they didn't want to be in and one they can't control. And we see sort of how that's shaking out for people is that some people are learning to adapt. They're learning to be resilient. They're finding ways to make things better than they were before. Other people are digging in their heels and refuse to change and refuse to adapt and keep clinging to this when things get back to normal. And I've told you this story a million times. That was what was hindering my progress in my recovery. I kept trying to get back to the old me. I kept trying to like, I used to be good at this. I used to be good at that. Surely I can do that again. And finally, a therapist said enough about what you used to be able to do. It's about what you can do now. And I think that's like such a relevant lesson to what we're going through now. It's the people that are digging in their heels and refusing to see that things have changed, whether it's like how we educate or how we interact with each other at a restaurant or how, like we're Absolutely. not going back. And for some things, that's actually a good thing. It actually is a gift. So I'm seeing so many parallels right now with like exactly my own personal journey and then what everyone else is experiencing right, right now. And I just want to like, I just want to hug everybody, but I can't because <laughs> we're socially distanced. And I just want to be like, it'll be okay if you let it go. If you stop fighting and just go, okay, what's my real goal here? And how do I need to adapt to accomplish it it's versus a, like, let's get back at, to normal. Yeah, absolutely. It's looking at acceptance. That is not a, a term of sometimes people can see acceptance as a negative term, right? As a but compromise. We, exactly. Yeah. And of course, compromise can be positive and negative, but mm -hmm. acceptance really is that it's the Darwinian quote that is very applicable now that you know, survival and success isn't based on how strong or how smart you are. It's how adaptable you are. Absolutely. It's really, yeah. That's in our face right now, for sure. And we yeah. do need to embrace that. And you touched on so many of the important points that I hear from clients, brain injury survivors and their families every day, mm -hmm. like the, the comparing ourselves, which does is not only in the area of brain injury, as you just said, we're talking about that even now. Any crisis. Any yeah. crisis, any change, any situation you can look at. And if you compare it to where you were or mm -hmm. where things were, so many survivors and families will talk about that. Like they really, they grieve and they long for where they were. And that is a, a very natural process of grieving. That's a very natural process that helps us get to that point of acceptance to get to the point where we can say, okay, now I'm going to accept what's happening. Mm -hmm. So we have clients talk about that all the time, that if they compare to where they were, they mm -hmm. compare to the Maria who was running her business and social and running. Multitasking, remembering names really well. Yeah, all of that. All of that. And it, it can make people, it can enhance the depression and, and it can enhance the frustration mm -hmm. and which also makes us function even more poorly or more challenged than we are, whether right. it's brain injury or just under stress. And so you, you allude to that. And that's a very, very important point is that we really want to look at where are we now mm -hmm. and where can we go? Yeah. And not focus so much on the past. 
mm-hmm. in many situations. Yeah. And you want to grieve, but then accept and be, and then you can move forward. Exactly. And I think that's the thing. That's the line that I always say is that acceptance is not about compromise. It's actually a very active thing. Cause I think in our minds, when we hear the word, just accept it, we have this vision of us being pushed back to sit down in a chair and be still, at least I do. Like when someone says, just accept it, I feel like they're patting me on the back or on the head and they're forcing me to go sit down and opt out. But acceptance is actually much more active than that. Mm-hmm. And so acceptance means, okay, this is, this is the reality of what's in front of me. So what was my goal? What's the kernel of what's actually important to me to make happen? What's another way I can get to that? Exactly. And so it, re- it requires us to look at what is really important. Like, I'll give you an example. My six-year-old, I have been heartbroken that his kindergarten year was ruined. Like, that's supposed to be the best time in our lives, right? And, and I was going through the same grieving process of like, oh my gosh, he's not going to get to be a kid and he's not going to get to do all these things. And I still grieve that. And luckily, he's, he's <laughs> back in school right now, at least temporarily, but Then it was like, okay, what am I actually grieving? Am I actually grieving that he can't physically go to school? Or what's under that? What's under that is I want him to be carefree. Mm -hmm. I want him to be able to use his imagination. I want him to be able to connect with other kids. So I found other ways to do that. And so that's what acceptance means. It's like, I can keep getting mad that he couldn't go back to school, but really what was it about? that I was trying to accomplish. It wasn't about that thing. It was something else. Oh, there's five other ways to make that happen. And one of the biggest ways is not to sit there and sulk and mope in front of him about the fact that he can't go back to school. (laughs) So, you know, what could I do to make things magical? What can I do to make things creative? What can I do to take the stress off him? So yeah, that's his childhood. He's still getting his childhood, right? And so that's one example that so many of us, you know, have been mourning the loss of like the way things were. And in some cases, not necessarily the school example, but some cases I was just having this conversation yesterday with somebody like, was normal really that great? (laughs) Like in, in some ways, right? Like here's one thing I've noticed from people that work in corporations or whatever. What I've heard is they've said, things are really busy, but the urgency and the pace of things have slowed down because we literally are not together to get everything done as quickly as we used to. Mm -hmm. And one of my friends even said, I never want to go back to the way it was before, where it was like constantly a fire under you every day, every minute, da, 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 da. Like it was sort of like my brain injury. Like we can't move at that speed anymore. There's so much to learn and take away from any experience. Absolutely. As you're speaking to, right? And in the face of anything, mm-hmm. you can always look and find the silver linings. You can mm-hmm. always look and find, well, what do you want to take from that experience that you can then apply to going forward mm-hmm. that'll make whatever you're doing even better, that mm-hmm. will strengthen your team, that will strengthen your life, that will. Mm-hmm. So, of course, this adaptation of shelter in place, or we're not coming together as much, there's a lot to adjust to especially mm-hmm. for those of us who are more extroverted, love being around people. Get Touchy feely, being, yeah. yeah. I mean, that, <laughs> that has been, I think, the biggest challenge for me. I yes, absolutely. Missing my people in my life. And mm-hmm. I'm even leading a team of people who I love and adore working with, and I don't get to see them very often except on a computer. Right. But the silver lining is we have the computer, we have Zoom. Thank God that mm-hmm. we have the capability to come together and the more that you you practice that 
adaptation, the more you build the muscle of resilience because it gets easier the next time of if you're able to pivot. And I know it's hard. Like personally speaking, one of my brain injury deficits was my ability to switch gears quickly. Mm. So that's why I have to have a very set schedule. I have to have like, I need things on my calendar. If something catastrophically goes wrong, it kind of sends me into a little bit of a panic and anxiety. And that's literally a direct result of my brain injury. But the more that I get into the situations and adapt my way out of them, the more nimble I become. So it's still painful, but it's just like, you know, I've been talking about this for the empathy book about exercising your empathy muscle, but you also need to exercise your resilience muscle and have more practice in agilely adapting to different situations. And so if you can find the small ways to do it, then when the big ways come, you can be like, right. And I bet for all the staff, there were probably people that were terrified of just instantly making a decision and, and pivoting. They wanted time to think about it and assess and analyze and <laughs> like get their bearings, right? But sometimes you need that catalyst that forces you to do it because now they've done it and they know they can do it again. Exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. Everything that you have talked about and everything that you do and your book that we're going to go to in a minute alludes to, leads to that. Even being able to be empathic, being able to affect change, whether it's with your own family or with larger groups like you, you speak nationally to many different groups. And one of the things that struck me when I met you is how you took your experience of an aneurysm and as a patient, and you turned it into advocacy and in a very supportive, positive way to help other physicians, medical professionals learn and have empathy and understanding from what the patient's going through, PFCC, (laughs) patient and family-centered care, and how you were in a hospital that practiced that. And then you've taken that model and helped to speak to other hospitals and organizations and healthcare agencies about that. And how did that really impact, do you think, your outcome? So to explain to listeners a little bit about what patient and family-centered care is, it's, it's, it's a global movement in healthcare where it's a, it's a philosophy of how to run a practice or a hospital that's, like it sounds, very focused on the patient and their family and what their needs are. So there, it consists of a variety, there's pillars about communication and education and literal policies that happen within different healthcare organizations that are designed to see things from the patient's point of view and their family's point of view and make it a better experience for them. Now, this whole initiative sounds wonderful and magnanimous and good-hearted and, oh, empathy is great. But like many things, it started from selfish motives. It started from how do we reduce costs and reduce costly readmissions? And when we improve health outcomes, we reduce costs and we increase profits. How can we do that? Oh, we can create a philosophy and a system of policies that make the experience better for the patient. And then what they found was that it did reduce costs, increase profit, reduce readmissions, improve health outcomes, all of the things that 
everybody wants, right? Can't see that. Can't see that. <laughs> so I just, I didn't know any of that when I was in the hospital. We just had right. like an amazing experience in the hospital. And it was only when I was researching my book, Rebooting My Brain, that I, and also became a patient advisor at that hospital, that I uncovered that this wasn't by accident. This wasn't just a bunch of really nice people doing great things. It was actually a systemic operationalizing of empathy to what end, right? To the end of ultimately reducing costs, increasing profit, you know, increasing safety, yada, yada, yada. But leaving the patient with such an amazing experience and their family feeling seen, heard, and valued and staff feeling like they were doing right by their patients. So it was sort of like a win-win all around. And it got me thinking as a brand strategist and as a business strategist, well, the excuse that you can't do this at scale goes out the window when you see that this happened this way, that, you know, leaders that say like, well, our culture is not any good because of the people we hire. We need to hire better people. Partly, yes, but are you giving them the environment to thrive? Are you operationalizing compassion, empathy, service, emotional intelligence, whatever you want to call it, to again, have those great outcomes of increased innovation, increased profit, better retention of quality talent, all of these things. So that's what led to my most recent book, which is The Empathy Edge, about showing companies and leaders that empathy is not just good for society, it's good for business and it gives you a competitive edge. And the inkling of that started with that hospital experience. And that's what I opened the book with. Of yes, yes. Anyone who tries to say this is impossible because the company's too big or whatever. It's like these healthcare systems all over the world are having phenomenal success with this approach. And like I said, it's intentional. It doesn't happen by accident. And so if you create an environment, whether you're a nonprofit or a for-profit or a social enterprise or the Parent Teacher Association, <laughs> whenever you have a group of people, if you can create an environment with policies and practices that make it really easy for people to default to the empathetic or compassionate thing to do, you're going to have much better success than just like, oh, let's hire a bunch of really nice people and hope it works out. (laughs) (laughs) You know, or looking at, you know, you're talking about the bottom line as kind of the back door. Yeah. How empathy and success and looking at the outcomes of health in this particular example, that it doesn't necessarily matter. I mean, you have to have a focus on the bottom line. There has to be a fiscal success. You won't be in existence if you don't. Yeah. So the biggest thing, of course, is to be in existence. I mean, running a nonprofit, I think about a lot. (laughs) Right. You have to be able to serve more people and you can't serve more people if you go extinct. Exactly. Extinction yeah. is not what we're looking for. Yeah. You know? so, Extinction you know, is bad. Yes. <laughs> so the bottom line, you know, is very important. And I love how your book focuses on that. That is, it's the importance of you, of course, you need to be in existence. You need to survive. You need to think about the bottom line. You want to be fiscally successful. You want to have revenue streams. You want to have that success, whether you're nonprofit or for-profit. But what you don't have to lose, which I know in certain you know periods of time, we have lost a little bit of that in business and particularly in corporate business, where there is that forgetting or that disconnect from mm-hmm. The experience that you bring your customer, that you bring your client, that you bring your patient, the experience, we are experiential beings. So that makes a tremendous impact on how we're going to walk away from a situation and look back at it, how we're going to refer to that company, Mm -hmm. how we're going to think about it. 
And what, one thing that you said reminded me of uh, Darwin's quote that you actually have in your book about how the reciprocity and collaboration are even more important than having a competitive edge for being successful. Yeah, I think we just as a culture and as a society, I mean, that's sort of like, I feel like this like tiny ant screaming in the wind, but I'm not, I, there's actually a lot of movement around this right now, is that we need to redefine success and we need to educate leaders that empathy, compassion, humanity have a place in those bottom line discussions. Because if they do, you will do better. Like all the data and the research is there, right? And so we have this very limited view of the path to success. And unfortunately, so many group cultures have created a, a habit of how success happens there. And it's not good for anyone. It's not good for leaders. It's not good for the people that they're trying to bring on. It's not good for their position in the market, for their scalability, for their longevity. And so my hope was just to show like, hey, there's another way to do this. And more importantly, representation matters, right? So here are examples of companies that you know that are leading their market. You would never say that they're too soft or they're weak or they're Mm -hmm. doormats or whatever. And the more models that we show and we shine a light on, the more we make that the norm, which is what I'm trying to do with my Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Let's make that the norm and let's make the toxic workplaces, the toxic leaders, the outliers. Let's make them the pariahs. Not, yeah. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I love talking to you. I love listening to you. I just think you're brilliant and heart-centered with intellectual bent. You know, I just you. love that about you. Thank you. And I think I love the dedication of your book to your son. Thank you. And how it's for Callum. Mm-hmm. Here is my small but mighty attempt to make the world a better place for you, my love. And I have to tell you, when I first saw that, and I'm tearing up right now, I teared up. I literally did that. That is your purpose, your mission. Your you want to make, and it's not just for Callum, of course, but it's yeah, that that whole generation you know, mom and realizing, okay, I want. If you talk to, I mean, I, I talk to a lot of people. I love to have conversation. I love to connect. Love to hear what makes people tick. And you know, even if we are not in agreement on things, I love the conversation regardless. And that's where Everyday Awesome came from. Mm-hmm. title and why I want to do this podcast. And when you talk to people, almost everybody would say what you're saying. They would say, I would love in my business dealings, in my daily work life, in my personal life, when I go to the grocery store, when they would love to have a meaningful connection and also financial success. Yeah. And when you marry those two, you can marry those two in every situation in your life when you think about it and when you pay attention and stay conscious. So part of what you're talking about in your book is conscious consumerism, Mm -hmm. conscious business, conscious Mm -hmm. leadership, being a conscious patient and Mm -hmm. a conscious customer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I I know your book came out last year, but it's so timely. I know. I hate that a pandemic had to accelerate the conversation, but it, you know, it really has. And And that's the thing that's, you know, talk about silver linings. Like that's the thing that I hope we take away in this adaptation is what has happened is empathy and compassion have risen to the surface, like in a way that 
I don't know 20 years ago if something like this would have happened, but you know, look at all the brands and the companies yeah. and the leaders we are looking to about how they are treating their employees, their customers, their community. Mm-hmm. They're, they're heroes. And whether they're doing it for optics or not is kind of beside the point, right? The point is that empathy and compassion are being celebrated as success factors right now. And just, you know, again, as a brand strategist, the brands that are showing up with compassion and an empathy are winning right now. And they're going to come out of this on top. Oh, absolutely. Like, I think no we're out in yeah. that direction. And could you, yeah. for our listener, just share what is your view? What's your kind of working definition of empathy? Oh, that's a good one to talk to. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, empathy, to, how I defined it for the purpose of the book is that it is the ability to see things from another person's point of view and where applicable, feel what they're feeling. It doesn't always have to be the feeling part of it though, because mm-hmm. you can have cognitive empathy, which is just, I am seeing the situation from your point of view, even if I can't, I've never experienced it. Exactly. And then further using that information to make a decision or take a course of action. So it doesn't mean that the course of action is not going to be a tough decision. It doesn't mean that things like layoffs or, you know, having to say no to a customer are not decisions you have to make, but you can do that in a compassionate way, how you communicate, absolutely, how you see the situation from their point of view. So I like to get a lot of skeptical business leaders on board by saying, it's not about emotion. Like I think a lot of them have this image of you know, sitting there crying on the floor next to their employee all day. (laughs) That's not what we're talking about. But I try to tell them it's, if you're uncomfortable with that, this is just a method of perspective taking. This is a method of information gathering. And the better you are at being able to gather various points of view and then make a decision based on those things, the more effective leader you're going to be. You're actually going to make better decisions. Exactly. And I have to say, you know, reading your book as a leader, I feel like I learned a lot and paused and thought about my approach and Mm -hmm. how I want to lead with a team and inspire them to also come from that perspective as well. Mm -hmm. And it's so it's strengthened that in me to think more about compassion and empathy when I'm making some of those tough decisions, which you do pretty regularly. And in your book, there's a couple of things I wanted to share. You have a quote from Henry Ford that I think kind of sums up what you just described as empathy and compassion really well. If there is any one secret of success, it lies in the ability to get the other person's point of view and see things from that person's angle as well as your own. So it doesn't mean you shift your perspective. It doesn't mean you change your mind or you change your experience or you change how you see things. Mm -hmm. You just have almost a blend of recognizing your perception, your perspective, and also where that person may be coming from. Mm -hmm. And you have a story in your book that really resonated with me and surprised me, I have to say, with Christina Harbridge, who yes. was working for a debt collection agency mm-hmm. and was very, I mean, all the people working there, this is a, you know, you kind of open your book with this in your chapter one about all the people that she worked with, super nice people, got along great. And then they got on the calls and they were just, this whole other side of them came out. It was like, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> their personalities came out and were so harsh on these co- the customers who they were trying to collect money from and that she left that to start her own debt collection agency to the point where you she decided to utilize empathy and compassion and she increased revenue 
mm-hmm. to 33% payment success rate versus the average like yeah. 9.9% in other debt collection agencies to the point where they were wanting to learn from her and she started consulting. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the things that she had said is that when people, you know, how people feel about themselves will affect what they choose to do or whether they will pay in that particular circumstance. Mm -hmm. And so she took the type of business that we all would dread and you can hardly imagine that empathy would have an impact in that environment. And she completely turned it around to the point where there were relationships with the customers. Mm-hmm. They were getting wedding invitations and thank you cards. And mm-hmm. I think that for our listeners, just if you get Maria's book, which of course I highly recommend, it's The Empathy Edge. And the, look at this story in this book and take yeah. the time to really think about how compassion and empathy could enhance your relationships and your business. Where can they get the book? So they can get the book at all the usual suspects, Amazon, barnesandnoble.com. They can also find or request it from local bookstores or through independent booksellers. They also have access to it. So if you're looking to support some independent booksellers, just have them order it and they can order it for you and you can support a local business at the same time. Great. And do you have on your website, can people order the book through you? Yeah, it links them to all the places they can get the book at red-slice.com. And if they want to check out the podcast and the book, they can go to theempathyedge.com. Great. Okay. So we have a couple minutes and I had just a couple quick questions for you, but I do want to say that I love your podcast. Thank you. <laughs> now Thank as you. A, a brand new, you know, podcaster myself and my little podcast that could is what I'm kind of, I love it. it it'll <laughs> get addictive. To it. <laughs> it'll get addictive. Like, like you said, I'm like you where I like to have conversations and I just want to keep learning from people. And if I could find a way to do that full time and pay my mortgage, I would do it. <laughs> I well, would do just know. that. Yes, we never know. We never know. We don't. Uh, there are people who do it. So absolutely. Why not you, just, right? Yeah. It's just addictive to have people. Sh- I love, for me, obviously I'm a brand strategist. The power of story is very important to me mm-hmm. and using story for good and being able to share stories, share inspiration. That's why I love what you're doing with this podcast. So yay. Thank you. And I have to say, I have also, the listener doesn't know, but I've also worked with you on branding for our nonprofit. And it had a tremendous impact in how we're communicating our mission. And our goal, of course, I mean, we're trying to connect with survivors and their families whose lives have been changed. So there's a certain way that you want to tell your story of your mission to reach and connect with those people who will feel safe and trusting to want to come to your organization. But then we also need to have messaging and branding and marketing that will speak to people who want to donate and help support a community organization that is reliant on donations Mm -hmm. to survive. So you, I think, are incredibly talented. I enjoy the experience of working with you and it has completely changed the way that we message. So if people are interested in working with you from a branding perspective, they would also go to red-slice.com. Absolutely. And so your podcast, I listened to today's episode and oh my, I mean, obviously the timing of your episode was was smart and applicable to voting day. So just for our listener, if they are interested in going to your podcast, your podcast is called the Empathy Edge Podcast. Mm-hmm. And today you have Elisa Camahort page on your episode. So I highly recommend your podcast. And one of the things I wanted to ask you, Maria, is what makes you tick? What inspires you? You know, I heard a question recently from a friend on Facebook that was, what makes you want to get out of bed in the morning? What is that for you? 
<laughs> oh my gosh. The listener can see the look on her face. That's a tough question. <laughs> or even just what inspires you and makes you tick. I think what inspires me when it comes right down to it is the ability to make a difference. And I've learned that it doesn't have to be difference on a grand scale. It can be difference to a few people. It could be a difference to, you know, the barista you see or the neighbor that you pass in the street, or you just sort of never know where everyone's at. And so I think what gets me up is the ability, like, am I going to be able to make a positive difference to someone today by through my podcast or through my books or through my work? A little of that is also, that's how I crave acceptance and how I crave validation, but it comes from being able to actually have a lasting impact on somebody. Because I remember many years ago, I was having this conversation with another entrepreneur and we were talking about if you work with a client and then they don't change their business, they don't do anything with the information you've given them. And that happens to me a lot. I've been doing this work Mm -hmm. for almost 13 years. I said, you know, some people would be like, well, it doesn't matter. They gave you their money, right? And not that I'm going to give the money back because I've done the work, (laughs) but I have much more of a sense of satisfaction if it's actually catapulted their organization or their business. To me, that's exponentially more than the money. And so it actually saddens me when someone pays me for work and then they don't take any action on the recommendations and they don't actually move their, their business or their work or their impact forward. Because I like to sort of think I can be a catalyst. I don't necessarily have to be the person out front all the time. But if I know that I'm catalyzing all these other influencers and impact makers and change makers, that gets me jazzed too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, all the research on happiness and articles and speakers who talk about happiness, they have discovered that it it is never about the money. Mm-mm. The only way that money, at least from what I understand from the happiness research, is the only way that that makes us happier is if we have enough money to meet our daily life requirements for survival. If right. we don't have that, that will impact our happiness, which is happening right. in our country right now. Right. And so if you have enough money to have a roof over your head and have food, right. then much more money than that doesn't make you any happier. Yeah. So you're well, you're speaking to that by your drive of, well, I definitely want to get paid for what I do because mm-hmm. that's survival. But right. I also want it. What's even greater for me in my happiness in my work is. Is impact. Is mm-hmm. the impact. Absolutely. 100%. Actionable impact. Well, and to know that you matter. Like, I think that's everybody. Yeah, right? We all like, want to know I, that. When Absolutely. I decided to share my story about my brain injury, I had all these doubts about, should I even be writing a book? Right. And I was like, well, I'm not famous and I'm not, you know why will anyone care about this random woman who had a brain injury? (laughs) And, but that was the thing is eventually what happened was in sharing my story, I impacted all these other people and they wrote to me and said, thank you for this, or this Mm -hmm. gave me hope, or I'm dealing with this, or people writing to me from the emergency room. Mm -hmm. They're sending me an email because they've been online and they found my book. And, and so just being able to impact those people, like, yeah, did I make it on the New York times bestseller list? No, but I have every email I've ever gotten from somebody. Oh, I, I've I looked, I mean, that. even, you know, a couple of the, I've only had a couple negative reviews, those sting. But then I look at like the 150, 160, 180 good reviews of people going, oh my gosh, this was exactly what I needed to understand my spouse or my relative that has a brain injury, or especially from the caregivers, oh, from doctors and therapists that absolutely. were like, I never knew what my patients were going through. 
And I was like, so it was worth it that absolutely it didn't have to be all these like, you know, faux measures of success of like, did I sell millions of copies? Did I mean, I mean, that would be great, but, <laughs> but I didn't, but it's still like, it's one of the most rewarding things I've ever done in writing that book and sharing the story. And so I think getting kind of back to a theme, a thread here is like being able to adapt and redefine success mm-hmm. is also what's going to make you happy. And you have to really think about why you're doing something, what you really want to get out of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And you, yeah, I mean, you said that so well, and it is, you know, we don't know truly how many people we actually impact by, like you were saying earlier, even the smallest gesture of, mm-hmm. you don't know where somebody's at. So offering a smile to somebody mm-hmm. who you, as you pass them, or even just saying hello or listening, mm-hmm. active listening and really hearing them. And you don't have to fix it. You don't have to change the situation, but just listening. We just don't know the ripple effect of that. So your book and the people who read your book, you really will never know how that then impacted the people in their life and whose lives they changed because they read your book. And I mean, even just knowing you and me reading your book mm-hmm. has impacted how I am right? with the people that I work with. So right. I've impacted more lives than you will ever know. And I will ever know. So this whole, it's just... And it's so funny because with the empathy edge, you know, being a business book, I actually got if it never goes anywhere else again, although it's actually doing really well and is very well received, is I was at a book event when we were doing events back in Vancouver. And the woman who was moderating the panel told me that a friend of hers had been really unhappy with her boss for a really long time. It was just a very, very toxic work environment. So she told her about my book and the woman read my book the next day, went and gave her copy to her boss and said, you need to read this book. And in a week, we're going to discuss it. <laughs> and if you don't, I'm leaving. Oh, brilliant. And so her boss, I mean, that could have gone either way, right? Absolutely. Her boss actually the read the book and got it. He understood what she was trying to tell him. And they had a very productive conversation. Everything changed. And I was like, yeah. if I spent three years researching that book for this one woman, like... <laughs> I'm done. Like, you know what I mean? That was such a like, oh my God, it actually changed yeah. her work life. And it, it changed his. As and it changed his as a leader and, and then, all the other people he's going to lead. Absolutely. And like, I was just, I, could, I was floored when she told me that story. Cause I mean, can you imagine if someone was probably that? a different person at home now too. It's, it's, well, it's, yeah. It leads into everything. And so you have three years of research to have that impact, even just that story right there. I'm like, it's right there. You know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I still want to sell books, but you know what I mean? I mean, we can call this Maria's magic. This it was Maria's so, it was so heartening to me and it it's is. so gratifying to, yeah, and, and the same thing with, with the brain injury book. I mean, that has just been, oh. that was a labor of love. So yeah. absolutely. And it brought me to you, my brain. Yes, it did. Book, so. It did. I know it did. And I, <laughs> I am, I would not wish an aneurysm on anyone. No. And a silver lining is I got to meet you. Yes. So we're wrapping up here and I hope the listener has just really, I know anybody listening has, is walking away with a tremendous amount of inspiration and even increased insight in ways that they may not have expected from hearing this conversation. I know I am, and I even knew you before we got this <laughs> So I have a question for you. You know, my podcast is called Everyday Awesome. And it's really about engaging with people who, which is pretty much can be any of us. They're well-known names, people that we've never heard of. It's it's just people mm-hmm. who have 
gone through adversity who are inspiring, innovative, and interesting in the way that they are approaching their world, their circumstances, their business, the society at large, in any way. And the awesome part, the name came from, I try to look at something that brings me awe every day. And sometimes you have to dig for that. Yeah. There are days when I have to really, really look for that. And that's kind of where this came from is people who are doing that. And so wondering if you could just share with our listener, what is something that you do every day that you notice the awesome in your day? You notice something that brings you awe. What do you do on a daily basis that inspires you or lifts you? Unfortunately, I don't get to do it every day, but I try to, well, I always try to take a break from my work because I, I I have worked from home since 2008 and it's very hard to separate your work and your home life when you work at home. But I find getting myself like a latte or a tea and just sitting is tremendously helpful. Again, when I'm able to make time for Absolutely. it, I should be doing it every day. But even just that little treat of like, okay, if I'm going to sit down to crank at some hard work I have to do, just the ritual of making myself a latte or making myself a cup of tea feels indulgent. And it feels like I'm doing something for myself and it forces me to slow down. And I just really relish that. I relish being able to sit behind my computer with my warm mug of whatever. and it just brings a calmness to me. And I think that part of the being able to see the everyday awesome is to stop long enough to see it. Like (laughs) you've got to stop and sit and see. And so just being able to be in your body and in your breath and have a second, like I'm the energizer bunny, like just like many people probably, but even to be able to take that five minutes is a game changer for your day. You know, I know you and I know that you are the Energizer Bunny. And I think that may be a gift from the universe or God or whatever you believe. <laughs> that yeah. is probably how you've been <laughs> since you were young. And, I, and you know, good for you. <laughs> a lot of people would like to bottle that up and figure out where they can buy that. Uh-huh. So that's a business idea. But the pausing and seeing, it's that mm-hmm. pausing and literally just not doing anything. Yeah. But taking a sip of tea and ideally outside. So one of the things I've started to do is sit outside for at least 10 minutes during the middle of my day. I go for a walk and I also sit outside in the middle of the day when I can get sun and I just let the sun on me. Even just sitting outside and feeling the sun on you and not thinking about anything in particular and taking that break. There's also research that shows we are more effective by taking breaks when we go back into what we were doing. We're more effective. We think, oh, I don't have time for that break. It's the athlete mentality. There is no elite athlete in the world who trains constantly. Exactly. Never. They take a rest day. They take a break. They recover their muscles so that their muscles come back stronger. Yep. So if we would think like athletes, we'd actually be much more efficient. So I'm going to give the listener a couple takeaways today. So what we just said, I'm going to give the listener and ask that they take this into their daily life, lessons that we can learn from this conversation with you, is to every day at some point, take a pause and do whatever it is that you can do. If you can get outside and feel the sun on your face, great. If you can make a cup of tea, but if you can, if your life is that busy, at least today and every day, pause and take a few breaths, close your eyes and stop what you're doing, shift your thoughts from it and then come back and just see the impact that 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 makes. I also want to support the listener to listen to your podcast. 
and get your book. Of course, I'm going to put that that out there and also inspire and hope that the listener will walk away with wanting to look in their day at anything, no matter what kind of day we're having, that will bring some smile, some, you know, inspiration. And the last thing you alluded to it earlier is I think every day I would like to ask that anybody listening will do something that is a small act of empathy or kindness or compassion to another person that you don't know. Of course, mm-hmm. do it to, with people that you know in your life. Yes. But if you see a stranger, smile. Mm-hmm. Just say hello. Especially now with the masks, there's less of mm-hmm. that happening. So I would just encourage- Give a wave. Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> a wave or something smile. that, you know, just say hi. People, people will respond and mm-hmm. share your compassion, exercise your empathic muscle through those acts. Yes. Maria, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you as always. I can't wait till we can get together again at a cafe and feed the meter repeatedly because we're having such a great conversation. I'm going to remind the listener where they can find you. So red-slice.com mm-hmm. and on your podcast, you're on all the podcasts. All form. the podcast channels and they can get the podcast directly at theempathyedge.com. Okay. And anything else you want to leave with the listener before we take off today? No, this has been great. Thank you, Patricia. Oh, it is so nice to see you. You just emanate light. I know the (laughs) listener can't see you because we're on Zoom, but I can see you. And so uh, thank you so much for listening today. This has been Trisha G and Maria Ross looking at what we can make awesome in every day. Love yourself, love others, take good care. And until next time, this is Trisha G signing off. Hey there, and thanks for listening to this week's episode of Everyday Awesome. How lucky are we to have had this conversation today, learning, growing, and being inspired together. I am so grateful to have had this time with you. And if you like what you heard, please share it with a friend, family member, neighbor, or what the heck, share it with a stranger. (laughs) And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions, suggestions for future guests you'd love to hear from, comments or feedback for me, you can reach me directly at everydayawesomewithtrishag at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and let's make every day awesome.